You're listening to Pastor David Gusick preach through the Book of Acts at Calvary Chapel, Santa Barbara. The theme from the Book of Acts is Spirit-Driven. Today is Orphan Sunday, and we think that's an important day, and it's important for us to highlight to you one of the very significant works that our church family is involved with regarding reaching the world and ministering to orphans around the world. And we'll talk about that later. But how could we get together and not spend our regular time in the Word as well? So we're going to pick it up here in Acts chapter 16. Let's open up our Bibles there together. Acts chapter 16. Father in heaven, we ask you now that you would come and speak to us as you're so faithful to do Sunday after Sunday. Speak to us by your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We pick it up this morning in Acts chapter 16, and we're going to begin at verse 19. When we finished last week, we saw that the apostles, namely Paul, accompanied by Silas and Timothy and now Luke, that they had come into a new continent. God opened up the doors for them to go to Europe, and on that European continent, the first place that they targeted to start a church was the city of Philippi, and and they had some amazing things happen there. They, they, They went to a gathering where there weren't enough men in the city to have a synagogue, but they went to a gathering of women who were there by the riverside meeting for prayer, and among these Jewish women, there was one notable convert, a woman named Lydia. And then they had this other amazing thing where Paul, in a dramatic way, cast a demon out of a demon-possessed girl, but but this girl's demon possession actually made her master, she was a slave girl, it made them a significant amount of money. And so in the midst of all of this, they would be very upset that their money-making machine had now ended, and that's the reaction we get to now at verse 19. But when her master saw that their hope of profit was gone... They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. And they brought them to the magistrates and said, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city. And they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. Then the multitude rose up together against them. And the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Well, things can go from good to bad pretty quick, can't they? You know, in one minute, there are Paul and Silas and the whole team there enjoying a great season of ministry in the city of Philippi. And they see this dramatic thing of seeing a a demon cast out of a demon-possessed slave girl. And who could possibly think that there's anything bad with that? Who, Who could be against freeing a person from demonic possession? But isn't it the crazy world we live in? In this crazy world we live in, there are actually people who object to people actually being free from demonic oppression. And why did it that these men objected? They objected. It tells you right there in verse 19. Her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone. And that explains why Paul and Silas were treated so badly. The masters of this demon-possessed slave girl cared nothing for the girl herself. That Their only interest was in their ability to exploit her demonic possession for money. I know it's kind of strong, but I'll say it. They were like a cult pimps. They were prostituting her spiritually. They didn't care about the effect on her body, soul, and spirit with her affliction of being demon-possessed. 
They knew that they could turn some money off of it, and that's why they wanted it to continue. So what did they do? Verse 19 tells us that they seized Paul and Silas. They were singled out because they did this horrible deed of freeing a demon-possessed girl of the demon that tormented her. And they also seized them because it appears that they were obviously Jewish. Verse 20, these men being Jews. I don't want to get too far into it, but I'll just say probably of the four people in this missionary team, if you want to call it that, Paul and Silas were probably the two that looked just by facial appearance. And please forgive me if this offends anybody, but by facial appearance, they probably looked the most obviously Jewish. And Luke and uh, Timothy both being of more Greek backgrounds, probably didn't look as Jewish. And so they said, verse 20 right there, these men being Jews, they grabbed them, they beat them. Look at that, verse 23, when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison. You know, uh, the Jewish people in their system of law gave a strict limit to the number of stripes that is blows with a whip or a a rod that could be laid upon a person. They limited it to 40. There was no such limitation in Roman law. We don't know how many times that they were beaten with rods, with stripes. When they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison. So after being severely beaten, Paul and Silas were put in maximum security conditions. Did you know this? It says, that they commanded the jailer to keep them securely. And then in verse 24, it says they put them in the inner prison and they fastened their feet in the stocks. After this terrible beating, they were put in very uncomfortable conditions. And I, I don't know if I can describe it to you well enough. Just to say that the stocks that they put them in with their feet, they were adjustable. In other words, there were several different slots that somebody could put the leg and the foot into. Well, what they would do customarily is they would spread a person's legs wide apart until it was very uncomfortable, and that's where they would put them in the position. This was torture. They were in torturous conditions. And here they were in the midst of this Philippian jail, in the midst of this misery, beaten, stretched out to extremity, wondering where God was in the midst of it all, in the kind of crisis of faith that might cause many people today to be shaken. But look at what it says there in verse 25. It's just glorious. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And that's just remarkable. There they are, in the midst of all this terrible suffering. And listen, some of you probably had some bad weeks here. I don't doubt it for a minute. But, you know, I don't want to compare your bad week to Paul's bad experience in Philippi. But look, Paul's experience was pretty bad, right? And there he is in the midst of the prison at midnight. He and Silas are singing together, singing hymns to God. Though they were arrested, beaten, and imprisoned for doing what? For doing good. All of that tells them that they should sing praises to God. And they did it right there in the Philippian jail. It seemed as if nothing could stop these men from praising God. That's a pretty fair question to ask you and I, isn't it? What does it take to make you stop praising God? I'll tell you, 30 seconds longer than I expect at a traffic light can make me stop praising God. (laughs) It's shameful to think about the things, the petty inconveniences that we just allow to get us out of a mentality of worshiping the God who has saved us. But Paul and Silas, in this great extremity, they still worship God. And look, you and I can admit this, that it's easy for anybody 
to be worshipful and have that demeanor in happy, pleasant circumstances. But, but real joy, it comes from within. Real joy is something that really has very little to do with circumstances. Instead of cursing the men who beat them, instead of cursing the circumstances, instead of being angry with God, they blessed God. And I love what it says at the end of verse 25. You caught that, didn't you? It says, and the prisoners were listening to them. Wow, right? Aren't other people listening to you? Aren't they listening to you whether you will praise God or whether you'll have that sour demeanor? As strange sound it was to the other prisoners. I bet they had never heard such singing in the midst of a prison, right? I don't even know if it was on key. I don't even know if they were in time. But there was just something about the joy and about the whole experience that must have been so striking to those other prisoners. Those prison walls had probably never heard such a sound as men singing hymns of praise to God in that circumstance. So what happens? Verse 26. Well, the singing was so bad that suddenly there was a great earthquake. No, no. Wasn't that amazing? In the midst of all of this, it says, suddenly there's a great earthquake, verse 26, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awakening from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul shouted with a loud voice saying, do yourself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light, ran in, and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Can, can you picture this situation? What happens in the midst of that midnight worship service in a Philippian prison? Of all places, there was a great earthquake. Now, the earthquake was clearly supernatural. I'm not trying to say that there wasn't a cause and effect of seismic plates hitting against each other, whatever seismologists say happened during an earthquake. I'm just saying, if nothing else, the very timing of it was ordained by God, right? Even if you use completely natural means, it was the timing of it that was amazing. And at that moment, all the doors were open and everyone's chains were loose. Friends, I don't think that's normal during an earthquake, right? I don't think during an earthquake, everybody's chains drops off their hands, right? I mean, this is something clearly supernatural. At that very same moment of the earthquake, they're free. The prison doors are open. The chains are off their hand. And you know what you or I would say? And that's, oh, I'll just speak for myself, right? I won't assign to you the same wicked motives I would have in my own heart. But I'll just say, I would stand up at that moment and simply say, thank you, Jesus, for setting me free. I should have never been in this jail to begin with. I'm out of here. Would you know, talk about an open door. Literally, it's an open door right in front of you. I'm gone. But look, everything changed. Verse 27, when Paul saw that the keeper of the prison was about to kill himself. Now, the jailer did that for a good reason, because under Roman law, under their customs, guards who allowed prisoners to escape received the same penalty that their prisoners would have received. And at least some of those people in that prison were destined for death row. The, the guard says, I'm a dead man anyway. I may as well die from my own hand than have it taken from me after some cruel torture. I'll just do it. And it would have been so easy for Paul and Silas and the rest of them to escape thinking, thank you, God, you've opened up the door. But they had the wisdom. They had the discernment to know that just because a door is open, it doesn't mean you should go through it. That maybe God has a higher calling, a higher purpose in that critical moment. And that critical purpose was the salvation of that one man, that Philippian jailer. What discernment? Every circumstance said, leave. 
But the need and the opportunity presented by the Spirit of God right in front of them, a trembling man ready to kill himself, it said, stay and minister to this man. And so what did he do? Verse 29, don't kill yourself, Paul and Silas shouted. Verse 29, the man ran in and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. This hardened keeper of the prison fell down trembling. Can you see him in your mind's eye? He's shaking before Paul and Silas. He's dropped the sword that he was about to kill himself with. And it's as dramatic as it sounds in the text. This man was so affected, not just by the earthquake, not just by the risk of his life, but right there he saw the love and the grace of Paul and Silas at that critical moment. Everything changed for him, right? What happens next? Verse 30. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. Now, the jailer was so impressed by Paul and Silas, so impressed by the love that they showed to him, so impressed by the joy that they were able to take in the darkest of circumstances that he instantly wanted the kind of life that Paul and Silas had. Friends, I need to make something very clear. Paul could not save that man. Paul the Apostle, as great as he was, and I think he was a great man. I remember the words of Oswald Sanders. He called Paul the Apostle the world's most successful Christian. And maybe so. I'm not here to debate it, but just maybe so. But let me say this. As great as a man as Paul the Apostle was, Paul never died on a cross to pay for that Philippian jailer's sins, right? All he could do was point him towards a savior. All he could do was tell him exactly what he told him right there in verse 31. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. He could tell him to do that and he did tell him. But friends, you got to admit that there is a connection between Paul and this man's salvation, right? Didn't Paul live in such a radical, remarkable, joy-filled, led by the spirit way that people noticed and they wanted what he had? I need to be very careful when I say this because it's the kind of thing that a preacher can say and just empty out a dump truck of guilt and condemnation upon people. And that's not my intention at all. But as gently as possible, I want to lay the question down before you. Is there something about your Christian life that would be magnetic towards other people? And if honestly not, then why don't you just talk to the Lord about it and ask him to sharpen, ask him to refine. Ask him to build something in you that's so remarkable that other people would notice, just as they noticed with this Philippian jailer. It's a remarkable thing that Paul said to him in verse 31. He said to him very plainly, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Paul's answer to the Philippian jailer is the classic statement of the essence of the gospel. This is being rescued from sin and its penalty, both for now and eternity. It's being rescued for it by grace alone, through faith alone. Please notice, he didn't direct him to counseling. He didn't give him a lecture on theology. He didn't discuss the spiritual terminology of the jailer. He didn't talk about the sacraments. He didn't even point to churches. He pointed this man towards Jesus Christ and to put his faith upon him. Now, there have been some people who read this and they worry that Paul's invitation to the Philippian jailer is too easy. They say it promotes a too easy faith or what's sometimes called a cheap grace. You can't tell people to just believe because otherwise they'll believe. 
And then they'll believe and they'll think they're saved and they'll think they're transformed when they're not. But friends, all we have to do is just say, what happened here in the Philippian jail? And I think there's something. People worry that Paul didn't call the man to repentance. Look at verse 31 with me again. Does anybody see in verse 31 the word repent? No, but look at the situation. When you see a broken man trembling, saying, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? He was acting out repentance. Was he not? Paul could see it all over his life, all over his demeanor. He could see a man who was obviously repenting. It's as if Paul had this checklist. What does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to receive the rescue that we receive very freely in Jesus Christ? Well, it means to repent and believe. And Paul looked at the Philippian jailer and he checked repent off his list. Look at this man. What must I do to be saved? Shaking, trembling. The the look on his face, his whole demeanor. Yes, he's repenting. Now, this is what you have to do. You've obviously already repented. Now, you need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. There's something else in here that I would wish I could take longer to explain, but at least touch on it briefly. It's the whole idea behind this ancient Greek word, pistis, that we translate believe. And just let me say this. In our culture today, believe means something very different than it did with this ancient Greek vocabulary. For us, believe just means to give intellectual assent to something. But but in biblical thinking, believe means to trust in, to rely on, to cling to, to, to attach yourself in a trusting, loving way to someone or something. That's what Paul told him to do. He didn't just say, oh, I want you to believe that Jesus at one time in some place existed and walked this earth. He said, no, I want you to believe on who he is. I want you to trust in him. I want you to rely on him. I want you to cling to him. If you'll do that, you'll be saved. I can make that solemn promise to anybody here. If you repent and believe, repent because that's obviously where the Philippian jailer was and believe because that's what Paul called him to do then what Jesus Christ did on the cross will be credited to you and to your account. Isn't that glorious? In in other words, you can try to pay for your own sins. I won't ask for hands for volunteers or anything like that. But if you're determined to, you can try to pay for your own sins or you can receive the payment that Jesus made on your behalf on the cross. And how do you receive that payment? By repenting and believing just as this Philippian jailer did. It's really that simple. Do you want me to try to make it more complicated? Do, do you want me, you have to have a certain IQ in order for this to happen. You, you, you need to be good enough. Well, how good? Well, this good, that good? No, it's not measured by how good you are. It's not measured by how smart you are. It's not measured by, by your exact grasp of complex theology. I'll tell you what it's grasped by. Repent and believe. And that's how you appropriate. I read a story this week about an old chaplain general of the British Army. His name was Bishop John Taylor Smith. And he had a very unique test for candidates who wanted to be chaplains in the British Army. This is what he said. He said, how would you speak to a man who was injured in battle, who had three minutes to live? How would you tell him how to be saved and how to come to peace with God? And if the men couldn't explain it within three minutes, he said, sorry, you're not fit for my chaplaincy corps. Friends, could you do that? Could you explain it simply enough in three minutes to somebody how, how they can embrace who Jesus is and what he's done for you their life? Well, I'll just put it out plainly here. Today can be this year morning. It really can. 
I, I just encourage anybody here, if you have not done that, if you have not received what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross, you can repent and believe here today. It can be yours today. Repent and believe. I'll say it again. I can't say it any better than Paul did. Verse 31. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Notice he goes on. You and your household. This was a specific promise for the Philippian jailer. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul told the keeper of the uh, prison that his household would trust in Jesus just as he did. That's why Paul went, verse 32, and he spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. They were saved because they trusted in the word of God that Jesus revealed to us through the word. Anyway, going on here, verse 33. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. And immediately he and all his family were baptized. Now, when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. Friends, I don't know. We can read this and I think it's easy for us to just pass over how remarkable this is. The same man who probably was whipping Paul a few hours earlier, torturing him by putting his feet in the stocks, certainly supervising his incarceration. The same man says, hey, come on over to my house. Preach a little sermon to my family. I'll whip you up a little bit of food. Is that a demonstration of a changed life or what? Friends, you can see that this believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. It results in a changed life. That's the evidence that it's real. There's a change of life. And no, I understand that the changes aren't all at once, that there's a changing work that continues throughout our whole life. And the changing work is never completed until we're on the other side of eternity. We're with Jesus in glory. But there should be some change. And it was demonstrated by this love. More so, verse 34, and he rejoiced. This man was carried from a suicidal fear to abounding joy in just a couple minutes. I mean, just a short time before, he was ready to kill himself, literally to commit suicide, and now he's filled with joy. What explains such a radical transformation? I'll tell you, it's the life-changing power of Jesus Christ. It could be real in your life as well. And I think it's, for a lot of people you've experienced, you know it's real, but if I could say it, it's just, it's just stale in your life. Well, it doesn't have to be stale either. It can be fresh. And that's what Jesus has for each and every one of us, this radical joy that's exhibited in verse 34. Now, verse 35. And when it was day, the magistrate sent the officer saying, let those men go. So the keeper of the prison reported these words to Paul, saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Now, therefore, depart and go in peace. I find this very interesting. Verse 35, supposedly after that midnight snack at the jailer's house, because all this happened after midnight, right? After their late night snack at the jailer's house and the preaching of the household, the jailer says at the end of it, well, guys, it's been a long night. Boy, let's go back to the prison so that I don't get killed the next day. And Paul says, well, okay, great. Let's go back to the prison. And they they go back to the prison. They clamp the chains right on again. And the magistrates come to him the next day. And verse 36 tells us that the magistrate said, okay, just let him go. Depart, go in peace. But look at what Paul and Silas do in verse 37. Well, well, by the way, let me just say this. The magistrates came on their own initiative and set them free the next day. Then why did God send the earthquake in the middle of the night? The earthquake was not sent to free Paul and Silas from prison. The earthquake was sent to save the Philippian jailer. That's exactly what Paul and Barnabas discerned. Excuse me, Paul and Silas. Verse 37. But Paul said to them, they've beaten us openly. 
uncondemned Romans and have thrown us into prison. And now do they put us out secretly? No, indeed. Let them come themselves and get us out. And the officers told these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. Then they came and pleaded with them and brought them out and asked them to depart from the city. My friends, without getting in the intricacies of this, we'll, we'll cover it later on in the book of Acts. If you were a Roman citizen, you had significant civil rights in the Roman Empire. If you weren't a Roman citizen, too bad. Okay, but if you were a Roman citizen, you had rights. And one of the rights was you couldn't be arrested, you couldn't be imprisoned, you couldn't be beaten without just cause. You, you had these rights. Now, Paul and Silas did not lay down the Roman citizenship card as soon as they were arrested, which I would have done. If you would have arrested me and as soon as you brought out the whip, I would have been screaming as loud as I could, I'm a Roman citizen, I'm a Roman citizen. But for whatever reason, inspired by the Holy Spirit, they didn't. I don't know, maybe they tried and it just didn't work. I don't know. But for whatever reason, they didn't do it until this critical moment when the magistrates said, okay, we'll let these guys go. We've taught them a lesson enough. And they said, no, we're Roman citizens. And when the magistrates heard that they were Roman citizens, they said, oh, good heavens. We can get in a lot of trouble for treating Roman citizens like this. This cannot work at all. And Paul said, no, you're going to free us openly. You're going to do us the right way. You're going to show us some respect. Now, please understand. I think it's very important to understand why Paul did this. We don't have any sense that Paul was the man who was motivated by personal affront, by personal offenses. Well, do they know who I am? I'm Paul the Apostle. It had nothing to do with it. No, I'll tell you what it had to do with. Paul knew that they were leaving behind a small Christian community in Philippi that needed some official respect. He knew that they were going to leave behind a handful of Christians and that they needed some protection, some honor, some grace from the civil authorities. And he knew that this was his leverage to obtain it. So look at what happens. Verse 40. So they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. And I bet they encouraged them. Did they not? You see, they said, listen, we're not going to be run out of town. We're going to leave freely, but we're going to do it in a way claiming our Roman citizenship that protects this small Christian community that we leave behind. And it says they encouraged them and departed. Now, think about it. There are two for sure, maybe three notable converts left behind. I want you to envision in your mind the Philippian church that they left behind, right? You've got Lydia, right? She deals in high-end goods, right? She's the... You know, she sells expensive things. She's sort of a high-class lady. you got Lydia, right? Then you've got, and I'm going to speculate just a little bit, but allow me this. Then you've got a slave girl who used to be demon-possessed, right? She's the second member of the church. And the third member, a hardened Roman soldier. What a great church, right? <laughs> and then you got the Roman soldier's family. Now think about all of these ones. Lydia was a churchgoer. The guard was not. Lydia was prospering in, his, in her business. That The guard was about to kill himself. L- Lydia's heart was gently opened. The guard's heart was violently confronted. The, the guard had a remarkable sign, an earthquake. But all Lydia had was the move of the Holy Spirit on her heart. But listen, both of them believed. Both of them received the gracious gift of God's rescue. And through both of them, families and households were touched. And so it was a strange and wonderful church that they left behind in Philippi. Lydia, perhaps the servant girl who used to be demon-possessed, the Roman jailer, the people from the household of the Roman jailer, 
And, and notice one more. I want you to notice this in verse 40. Did you notice it? So they went out of that prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. Now, who's writing this? A fellow named Luke, right? And when he says we, he's including himself as part of the company. When he says they, it means that Paul and Silas and the others were doing something. When he says they departed, who does it imply was left behind? Luke himself. Paul probably said, look, we got to leave somebody for a few weeks with this fledgling congregation. Luke, why don't you stay behind and teach him the best you can? Luke said, okay, I'm the pastor of this. I'm the pastor of Lydia, a slave girl, Roman soldier, and a few other people. Okay, Paul, I'll do it. Now, this is what I want you to see. Paul had such a wonderful relationship with this Philippian church going on. Part of that relationship was marked by joy. Read the letter that he wrote to the Philippians and see the joy in that letter. And listen, Paul set the hallmark for joy right there by his display in the Philippian prison. But then there was another thing that he showed him. He showed him generosity. You, you see, I think that they showed incredible generosity, not so much with their money. We don't have any monetary exchange between Paul and the people in Philippi. But it was seen in the contrast between what they might have taken and what they instead chose to give. They could have taken no interest in the demon-possessed girl, but they gave her the gift of freedom. They, they could have taken... Uh, immediate refuge in their Roman citizenship, but they chose instead to give up their rights to immediate protection. They, they could have taken a place in bitter misery, but instead they gave up their souls in praise to God. They, they could have taken a way out when the earthquake broke their chains, but instead they gave up their freedom for the sake of one man who needed to hear the message. And they could have taken Luke with them, right? I'm sure Paul liked having a doctor with them on the trip. But instead, they choose to give them, to give him, I should say, to the young church in Philippi, at least for a time. Now, no wonder that later on, the Philippian church was so generous with the Apostle Paul. Because he had set a wonderful pattern. And do you know where Paul learned his pattern of generosity? From Jesus himself. Isn't that where any of us learn it? Listen, I, I'm talking to you about generosity. Not, don't worry about your wallets or your checkbooks right now. We're not going to take it. It's not generosity in that sense. I'm talking about the generosity of your life. I'm talking about a life that says, listen, I want the note to be on giving instead of taking. That generous life we receive from Jesus Christ himself, right? Jesus was generous with us. He came to this earth and he said, I've come to you not to be served, but to serve. Not to take, but to give. When that life transforming power is real in our life, it's evident and it makes a difference. I want it to be real in your life.